So I went to a dinner last night that was really fun. Everyone got together and did like a make your own pizza and then personal pizza and we put them in the oven and we sat around and we talked and ate pizza. It doesn't get better than that. Um, But it was the most adult hangout I've been to (laughs) in I don't know how long. What made it so adult? It really was the making the dinner and then sitting around the dining room table as three couples and just chatting. Mm. Mm-hmm. I realized that I think my my adult hangouts more closely resemble play dates. <laughs> Mine definitely do. It's usually I'm either playing a game or we're getting together specifically to like watch a show or like like we're usually doing something. Or if I'm hanging out with you, it's more of a play date in the sense that like there's no plans. Sometimes we won't even talk. It's just it's just be together. <laughs> uh, what is it when toddlers play with each other by just sitting near each other and not yes. sharing their toys? <laughs> mm-hmm. It was awesome. It, we were going to watch a movie and everyone just ended up sitting around the table because we were having such a good time talking. So it was there was not a bad thing in sight. Yeah. But I did have a moment going, oh, this is a lot of adult standard and i'm sitting here like where's the toys (laughs) (laughs) the worst part is people will talk about mortgages or oh we gotta get get ready for the kids and all this stuff and i'm like i mm." oh i saw this video that was really funny where it's like talking to at a certain point in your life you have two groups of friends the one the ones who are getting their houses and having their kids and the ones who are like I think I'm accidentally in a thruple I'm not sure anyway I'm gonna go to move to Spain about it and just <laughs> like in wildly different places in life and I feel that way very much I feel like I have groups of friends who are like literally having kids in a few weeks and then I've got groups of friends who are who knows what's happening with them I certainly don't I think they least of all I think everyone out in LA is has kind of collectively agreed that we're going to be the accidental thruple friends, not the yeah. kids settle down mortgage friends. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is a weird city of just little guys. It's the best, though, because I feel just like a little guy surrounded by like real adults doing real adult things. And I barely know how to pay my taxes. I'm absolutely gutted to discover that all of the adults that I thought knew what they were doing were just doing their best. I know. And I feel like I have that revelation every five to seven business years. And <laughs> business years? <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you thought the work week was bad. Try yeah, the right. work year. Try business years. <laughs> Um, I feel like I have that realization so often, and yet every time it's brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Like, imagine all of our teachers that were just like us. They were just us. Yeah. I try not to because it's – they had to know more than I do. This can't be what everyone else was working with. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Their skill tree has to have been more developed. 
Oh, for sure. I missed an update or a, a level up or something. Right. Like I didn't go off and do enough side quests to build up XP and get the points to have a good skill tree. So now I'm at a really high level facing a really big bad with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I just accidentally <laughs> powered through the first few levels of my life too hard. And now I'm underleveled for where I'm at. I was playing Control the other day. This is my first time playing it. And I have it set to you can't die mode, which every video game should have 100%. Because if I'm playing a video game, I'm really just here to be the main character of a movie. Mm -hmm. And I will die. And it's really rude that everyone is making me go back to the beginning for that. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that Baldur's Gate came out with, which this is not for me. They came out with tactician mode, which is the hardest mode possible. Oh, uh, no, there's there's tactician mode, which is the hardest mode possible. Then there's honor mode, which is the hardest mode possible. And you only get one save file for the whole game. So if your whole party dies, the game ends. Okay, well, as a human being on this plane of existence, I'm really tired of playing on honor (laughs) mode. And I would like to go to you can't die mode. Thank you very much. Here's what they did that I love, though. You can play on the easiest difficulty, but give yourself only one save. So then I like that because then I get to play it like it really is a movie and there's just one true canon. I want games Mm. to have things like that. Because they basically made it you can customize your game. So you can customize every difficulty setting, which is awesome. But anyway, I distracted you. You were playing Control. Oh, I was playing Control. I have it set to auto-aim for me. I have it set to I can't die mode. I'm just here to figure out what's going on with the spooky FBI. Mm -hmm. And still, I got to a big fight where I could have, I could just stroll into any fight and just tank damage because it doesn't do anything. (laughs) And yet, I rolled up into this fight, a big bloody thing came out. Mm -hmm. started shooting at me, I instantly went into dodge mode where I did not shoot or attack it. I just kept (laughs) zipping around. Uh And I, Rowan, in real life was absolutely screaming. Oh, I I know exactly what was happening. Not only do I know you were screaming, I know you were also like moving. If there was a controller, (laughs) the controller was moving with you as you're flailing around. (laughs) I get so scrunched into the couch. Come out and play video games with me so I can just watch and be like, look to the right, you missed a chest and not have to do the hard part. (laughs) I love sitting and playing video games where you're watching because you're eagle-eyed on the whole situation and I'm so narrowly focused and then we solve puzzles together. Oh, it's so fun. This is my preferred way. Hey, guess what? Uh, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast where Tracy and I operate one character stumbling through life that's here to bring you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, the combined creature that is Rowan and I research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, follow us on social media at Willing and Fable, or share your listener legends and questions with us at willingandfable at gmail.com or on our website. That is so true. This podcast is exactly you and I teaming up and be like, what if two of us equaled one? The whole thing. Two half-functioning brains equals one really good one.
Yeah, I mean, I really feel like there's something there if we want to analog it to like the American economy and marriage and how it used to be single earner households and now it's dual earner households and Mm. now two people working all the time is equivalent to what the buying power of one working person used to have. I'm fine. It's No, it's fine. That's not what I accidentally trained all of my social media feeds to only exclusively show me content about. I've ruined my life. I've somehow trained mine because I Googled one makeup thing yep. to give me all of that horror and a couple of glitter looks. Like I looked up one, one laptop bag because oh, no. I needed something to carry my computers no. around. no. Every, I'm not joking, every other video is the same one laptop bag that they're trying to sell me. If I get another ad for pants, I'm going to scream. Like, I I don't know what it is. It's this one pants company that is Mm -hmm. like every other thing that I do. It is frustrating. And I'm, this year I'm working on getting out of the consumerism mindset. Mm -hmm. That's my new... My new goal is to be like, you know, I don't need a lot of things. I just need a few good ones. Cut to uh, May. Oh, my God, Rowan, I just bought. No. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> no, 100%. But I'm working on it. It's little habits. I've gotten a lot better about uh, cooking and meal prepping. That's been something I've been better about. Here's the thing. I'm teasing you, but I think you're going to do great genuinely. <laughs> this feels very within reach. It, it, it has to be. I mean, I have to do something. I can't. I can't keep just like buying myself little treats when in my head it's a $5 little treat and every time it's a $10 or $20 little treat, they add up. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to get into the bit about the economy that my brain is giving me right now, but, you know, the $5 treat has become the $20 treat. Mm Mm-hmm. It has. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. All right. Before we talk about our topic today, there is one more way you can support our show. And that's by supporting your favorite local and small-time artists, either by buying from them or just sharing their work online, because we love when people pursue their passions. But no matter what, we're just glad to have you here. Get in, baby. I'm (laughs) (laughs) small-time. I just wanted to shout shout out artists. Go support some cool artists out there. Get yourself a little treat. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you can't afford a little treat, just, you know, repost, shout out, give credit to. <laughs> so, Rowan, are you ready to talk about Appalachia? Oh, I can't believe it. It's crazy that this episode felt like such a big choice because this is, I feel like, our baseline. I know. I have a little chunk about it later, but I'll just talk about it now. Uh, so we grew up near Appalachia and... I personally, I won't speak for you, but I growing up had this idea that anything that was far away from me was really cool. Mm. And if it existed near me, it couldn't be cool and mysterious. So I was Mm. interested in folklore from around the world, but I did not care about Appalachian folklore because I was like, well, that's like my backyard. That's not cool because it's in my backyard and what's in my backyard is not cool. Yeah. And so it took me a long time to get into this mythology. Well, I think part of it is also... I didn't realize that our baseline was Appalachian folklore because it's just what was there. And to be clear, Tracy and I did not grow up in the mountains. Neither Mm -hmm. of us have a one of the myriad Appalachian accents. We are not up on the slang. We're really from 
uh, the foothills would be gracious. We're really from out just outside. Um, yeah. But the interesting thing about those woods is they are vast. Mm-hmm. And if you get out of the woods, you immediately hit the Pine Barrens. So th- we're smack in between them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so much cool history and mythology that is, I mean, literally and figuratively in the backyards of where we grew up that to me – I was just like, well, it's not cool because I didn't have to work to find it or it wasn't far away. Like there was just something in my head that was like, all of this, not interesting. I don't like it. I think because it was readily available and I I just wrote that off as not interesting, which is such a bummer because I missed out on so many years of cool myths. I want to agree with you so bad because all I ever want to do in my life is agree with you. But I, <laughs> but the fact that I spent so much of my time as a young person trying to catch actual monsters in the woods leads me to believe that I might have been a little bit more involved in Appalachian folklore. <laughs> <laughs> you and I did genuinely spend about a year of elementary school trying to find a witch that we believed lived in the woods outside of our elementary school. I still don't know what was up with that situation. I guess it was just some person's chimney. Is that what it was? There was smoke coming from the woods, which was in a chimney shape. It's like a, you know, at the beginning of Hocus Pocus where you get the cut and then there's purple smoke coming up from the woods. Uh-huh. It's like that, except it wasn't purple. It was just regular chimney smoke. And I still <laughs> believe that there was a witch in those woods, even though those woods were about 10 feet across. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it was the woods outside your school where they've like cut it. So that kids can play. And then there's a little strip of woods so that the people in the little suburbs on the other side can pretend that they're not living right up against an elementary school. <laughs> yeah, looking back on it now, obviously it makes sense. But as a kid, I don't I don't remember the smoke. I remember – I think we heard voices or something, which again, clearly was families. But to us, the woods were so big, there couldn't possibly be a neighborhood <laughs> – on the other side of it. <laughs> I'm gutted that you and I didn't ever just run away from school and sneak into the woods because we were both good kids and mystery hunters and you can't be both. No, you can't. We always stayed right on that tree line just like we were supposed to. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> I think it's probably good that we didn't. It prolonged our our wonder and amusement instead of, you know, running into what would turn out to be someone's backyard. Here's the thing. I know all of the facts now behind this witch outside of our elementary school, but if any one person gave me the slightest hint that they would be up for spending a couple of hours investigating the witch, I would be all in again. L- like, facts are gone. Uh, absolutely. I just did that. There's a hiking trail near near where I live now, and we went on a whole, like, hour-long excursion on one hike because someone said there was a little witch's cabin somewhere nearby. So I would do it again. Correct. I have a neighbor who the little daughter that lives there puts out little fairy houses. She's been building them. Mm-hmm. And I need to talk to her mom and be like, can the fairies leave her stuff? Like, can I can I put things in there or will that make your life harder as a mother? Because <sighs> I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely check in. But God, if you could, what what fun for that little girl. They're like crows, right? Like they would bring shiny things. That's easy. Oh, I mean, throw a nickel, like a couple nickels, and it's going to be like the greatest thing that's ever happened to her. Oh, especially if you have any coins from like your last trip to Europe or a couple of euros. Or but honestly, also just like a little path of glitter. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. You got to get one of those little jars with a cork. 
So it's all folksy. Absolutely. And they have that glitter that when you get it wet, it turns into snow. We're going to make this little girl's entire year. (laughs) (laughs) This is how you make a Tracy and a Rowan. You got to start young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So Appalachia. So Appalachia. According to our beloved Wikipedia, Appalachia is, quote, a socioeconomic region located in the central and southern sections of the Appalachian Mountains of the eastern United States. It stretches from the western Catskill Mountains of New York State into Pennsylvania, continuing on through the Blue Ridge Mountains and Great Smoky Mountains into northern Georgia and Alabama, end quote. I feel like we should call out right now that we say Appalachia because that's the way that it is said, but you can say Appalachia. Or there's, I think there's another way to say it, uh, and no one will correct you unless you're unfortunately around someone who will correct you. Mm -hmm. But we butcher so much stuff on this podcast that if anybody ever says Appalachia to us, we just have to shut up. Yeah. I mean, if someone from the area says they pronounce it Appalachia, then I'll listen. But God, it just doesn't even feel right coming off the tongue. Yeah, no. So early 20th century journalists were fascinated by this region, and they wrote exaggerated tales about the unique culture of the area. They were especially fascinated by moonshining and clan feuds, often portraying people of the region as uneducated and violent. Once again, quoting Wikipedia, quote, While endowed with abundant natural resources, Appalachia has long struggled economically and been associated with poverty. In the early 20th century, large-scale logging and coal mining firms brought wage-paying jobs and modern amenities to Appalachia, but by the 1960s, the region had failed to capitalize on any long-term benefits from these two industries. End quote. I have a map here if you want to quickly describe it of the different sub-regions of Appalachia as of July 2023. Oh, wow. This is very recent. Mm-hmm. That's why I pulled it. I thought it was so interesting that it was so recently updated. And I also wanted to jump in and say, if anybody wants a little bit more info on the clan feuds that might be happening, or rather I should say have happened in Appalachia, Mm -hmm. the episode that I covered, the Hatfields and the McCoys, that is exactly what that is. And you go into a lot of detail around the culture in the area at the time that people were really fascinated by it and writing these stories. So looking at this map, the northern region starts in the lower portion of New York. It takes up most of Pennsylvania. Thank you, thank you. It takes up part of Ohio, which is, I think, why Ohio and Pennsylvania are always so similar in parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it just dips into Maryland. The north-central section is Ohio and West Virginia. Uh, Down to the left, we've got central, which is mostly just Kentucky. It's mostly Kentucky. Little bit of Tennessee. But it's also got Virginia and West Virginia, a little Tennessee. The South Central is is a nice little reach. It's Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. And again, we're staying away from the coast on this, right? We're Mm -hmm. moving a little bit towards like right if you drew a little swoosh down from the Great Lakes as we go. And then the Southern portion, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, that's kind of all the like top leftmost portion of those states. And I will tell you now that while there is so much similarity between Southern and Northern Appalachia, there is also not a single similarity between Southern and Northern Appalachia. And I can't explain that better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's a really diverse region. And 
According to National Geographic, one of the reasons the area is so rife for supernatural legends is not only because the mountains are old, but it's that they continue to appear old. Because much of Appalachia has remained uninhabited by humans, much of the ancient biodiversity is still with us. I will say, living in the part of Pennsylvania that we grew up, even the woods feel much older than many a wood that I've traveled to in other parts of Pennsylvania. And I hope that I'm not just being like too proud as a Pennsylvanian saying that. Or maybe I'm just used to them. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And for me, the the part that made it click was years and years and years ago when I went to Sweden. I remember driving around in Sweden and being so amazed at how stunning the landscapes were with the rolling hills and pine trees and forests and how old and beautiful and wonderful everything felt. And then I went home. Hmm. And I remember being struck at how much it looked like Sweden. And I didn't think that when I was in Sweden, I didn't think, wow, this reminds me of home. I thought it's just so incredible and beautiful and wonderful. And then I got home and realized where I live is incredible and beautiful and wonderful and has that same sense of awe to it that I didn't feel until I left and came back. Yeah, it's interesting. The portion of Pennsylvania we're from is in Philadelphia, the greater Philadelphia area, uh, mm -hmm. which means we have – we're actually specifically in the portion of Pennsylvania that is not marked on this map as being part of Appalachia. We have a lot of farmland. Uh, the Amish communities are, live where we're from. And it's so interesting the way the culture has trickled down even into our what I would call like smaller woods or our less ancient woods. But then you drive up to the Poconos and you're all in, baby. Mm-hmm. I think this is also why Pittsburgh and Philly love to fight. They do love to fight. It's really unnecessary how how much those two cities are pitted against each other. Except if you're out of Pennsylvania, because I live in LA, and if anybody talks trash around Pittsburgh, I am so fast to defend yeah. Pittsburgh. And the second I'm back in Pennsylvania, I will absolutely talk trash on Pittsburgh if it's charming and fun and everybody's having a good time. Yes, absolutely. Honestly, that's the only energy I'll bring to it. I'll fight for Philly against Pittsburgh if someone brings it up. But at the end of the day, I don't care. No! No! <laughs> Because we care about more important things like cryptids and ghosts. Yes. So speaking of, back to the National Geographic article, Elizabeth Byers, principal scientist at Appalachia Ecology, explains that, quote, the gorgeous habitats that haven't yet been erased by civilization range from dark, misty red spruce forests to layered oak forests from silver maple swamps along the major rivers to cotton grass fens on the high plateaus, end quote. The Appalachian region also has a unique way of speaking, and Lindsay Dillon and Jamie Mullins write for their paper titled Homegrown Appalachian Folklore that, quote, one popular claim is that the Appalachian dialect is the most representative of the oldest English dialect, older than Shakespeare and similar to Chaucer. How has such a romanticized dialect survived in Appalachia? Many claim the isolated terrain of rural Appalachia has seen time stand still. The truth is, while it may be more representative of Old English, the Appalachian dialect has also evolved over time. Immigrants who settled the region, largely from Scotland and Ireland, along with others who have entered the area since, have led to a distinctly Appalachian dialect that varies throughout the region as well. End quote. I know what fact you're about to roll in with. 
I know what fact you're about to come up with next because I remember when you called me and were excited about it. Or at least it's coming. <laughs> yes, the Appalachian Mountains are really old. You, you nailed it. That's absolutely okay. where I'm going next. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the highest peak of the mountain range is Mount Mitchell in North Carolina at 6,684 feet or 2,037 meters. It's also the highest point in the United States east of the Mississippi River. The range is older than the other major mountain range in North America, the Rocky Mountains of the West. Some of the outcrops in the Appalachian Mountains contain rocks formed during the pre-Cambrian era. The geologic processes that led to the formation of the Appalachian Mountains started 1.1 billion years ago. Many of the rocks and minerals that were formed during that event can currently be seen at the surface of the present Appalachian Range. So I had to include that because... Some of the rocks we're looking at, you just think, oh, it's rocks, it's whatever. But those rocks were formed over a billion years ago. And once upon a time when the earth was new and <laughs> the <laughs> land masses were smashed together, wasn't that mountain range attached to the mountains in Scotland and Ireland? The Highlands? I believe so. Yeah, it's the same mountain range from the Scottish Highlands, which is a great lead in to the next thing that's really unique about the area, which is their superstitions. Yes! And this is where I think there is somewhat of an influence into the things you and I experienced growing up. Although I think you more than me, because my family has much more of the Pine Barrens in our background, and like that's the area my parents grew up in. So I think there were some things that you were told growing up that I heard from you, but didn't always hear from my direct family members. Really? I made you yeah. superstitious? Oh, 100%. I think it was you who taught me that rocking chairs, you're never supposed to rock an empty rocking chair because it's a bad omen. That absolutely sounds like something I would say. I love the child me just educated adult me because I guess I forgot that one. Oh, yeah. Let's dive into it. I read through a bunch of articles written by people from the Appalachian region. As we know, these superstitions were passed down through generations. So I collected the ones that I saw repeated across multiple sites from different people all throughout the Appalachian region. Number one, always leave a building through the same door you entered it. Makes total sense to me. Yeah? Yeah, because if you leave through a different door, then how do you know that you're going to exit and be in the same pl like plane? That is 100% the superstition. Yeah, You don't I know. know either where you'll end up <laughs> or what could follow you out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this Standard is great. stuff. <laughs> okay. If you see a black cat crossing the road in front of you, draw an X in the air three times to avoid the bad luck. But you have to do it fast because you have to finish before the cat reaches the other side of the road. Uh, I think with the wrong cat, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think you're out of luck. The other one that is much more common is just a black cat or a black dog crossing your path is bad luck or a sign of death. Yeah, but like death is always happening. So that one's really easy to justify, yeah. you know, yeah. like. I think you'll be able to justify this next one, too. When you harvest apples from a tree, leave at least one to keep the devil away. Okay, if I'm correct, and this is from my own personal anecdote history, not from research, but I think that's an adaptation of leaving one for the fae. And then as, like, Scottish, Irish, Celtic, Germanic mythology got Christianized, it got adapted. But also correct. Yes, I agree. I think that's absolutely where it came from if I had to speculate. The other thing that I'll speculate is 
twofold. One, you leave an apple because you need a new apple tree. You need a new apple tree. And two, if it, back in these days, if the, the apple trees weren't the same as the ones we think of now. They weren't all producing honey crisps or all producing gal apples. Tragic. It was, <laughs> it was really, really variable what your tree could produce. One tree could produce some really amazing apples, some really tart apples, some whatever. So when you found a tree that produced really sweet apples, you would typically cut some off, graft it to another tree, do some crossbreeding. So it was really, really important. So if you have a good tree that's producing good apples, yeah, you better leave one there. Like, don't destroy the tree. I heard a story that Johnny Appleseed is actually spreading GMOs. Like, he was just dropping apple seeds everywhere so that his genetically modified apples would be in other people's farms and then he could sue them. <laughs> the Monsanto approach, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this one I actually do. I, it's a habit I can't break. If you spill salt, throw a pinch over your left shoulder. And for those who don't know, this is because it keeps the devil away, and he's always lurking over your left shoulder, so it has to be thrown over on the left side. Absolutely. I also do that. That is the correct thing to do. And <laughs> honestly, I, I do it for all the same reasons you do, but if you spill something, it usually sucks. You rarely get to have a response about it that is as tantrum-y as sometimes I think emotionally it feels. So spilling salt and then getting to chuck the salt feels good. I have – I've never taken the time to think of it in those terms, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good way to put it. I always am just like – Every time I spill salt, I think this is the time I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. And then as I'm thinking that my hands are already reaching and I'm throwing it over my shoulder, I have to do it. It's just Yeah. Okay. The next one. You must open the windows of a house when someone dies so that their spirit can escape. Uh-huh. Correct. Also. <laughs> yeah. The other one that goes along with this we know is covering the mirror so they don't get trapped. Exactly, because the Victorians were spooky. They were so spooky. And lastly, if you hear Heard someone, someone say your name, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. I'll tack on to here. I've also seen people say, don't run away from anything. Walk calmly. <sighs> it, she, the first girl who told me about that, like, you don't run, you walk, absolutely ruined me. The way yeah. I now must slowly walk through scary situations imagining something behind me just waiting for the split second that I start to run so it can snatch me. Now who looks like the bigger threat? Still not me. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the crying really throws it off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it makes you look powerful and stoic, walking back straight, head high, <laughs> tears flowing. <laughs> but yes, I do also always walk slowly out of scary situations. Do you? I, yeah, I do. Um, trying to think of a situation where I would run. This isn't for fires, by the way, guys. No, this isn't no, no, for no. like. This is for when your sleep paralysis monster is coming for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your sleep paralysis monster. If you're at a haunted house or something, um, I tend to try to ignore whatever it is. I think I definitely take the no, I didn't see it, no, I didn't hear it approach, whenever I can. I didn't realize we were so superstitious. You didn't? I, honestly, I really am having a bit of a moment. I didn't realize that the extent was this large. Do you have any other weird ones? Because I don't. I wouldn't put this on the rest of Appalachia, but crows are lucky in my family. If you see a crow, it's lucky. 
Oh, I know I've got a bunch of little things, I'm My sure. My mom is very much like, don't put it out in the world unless you want the world to answer you. Mm, I love that. I grew up in a very not superstitious family. My dad is a very logical scientist guy and and my mom I would go up to her when I was a kid and be like oh you know this thing about ghosts and she'd be like ghosts aren't real like I think she if mom if you're listening to this right now like you're probably sitting there going none of this is real like she's just not that's not her speed so I don't know where I came from you I came from you (laughs) our friendship (laughs) it has been my absolute pleasure to corrupt you (laughs) I'm so grateful for it no but that thing where you like uh if you don't want uh, something to happen, you don't say it. Or like you, if you make a wish, it has to be very specific because like the fae mm-hmm. will hear you. And if you're off even a little bit in your verbiage, you're going to be dead. They're going to give you exactly the thing that you asked for and it's going to be not what you hoped. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. Right. They're like, I wish I could get out of this situation. And they're like, well, you're dead now. You're out of the situation. You're out of the situation. Or you're now like dangling over an active volcano. You're not in that other situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we haven't done this in a minute, but I'm going to read a story in the middle of the episode. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. My name is Bloody Mary, and welcome to the opening ceremony of the 154th Annual Cryptid Community Convention. We at the CCC are proud to welcome you back to the Appalachian region for a long weekend of haunting, bonding, and say it with me now, education. No, no, green, gray. The answer is education. Say it with me. Education. Okay. We gather here year after year after year after year after year after year to connect and teach one another so that our community can terrify and thrive. Before everyone heads over to Beetlejuice's Punch Bowl to get freaky on the forest floor, we have a few orders of business. And with your assistance, I can move through this fairly quickly. On that topic, Beetlejuice would appreciate it if you limit the number of times you call his name. If you say it three times, he'll immediately be summoned to your side. This year, he would appreciate the opportunity to finish his conversations, and we don't want a repeat of the misunderstanding with that creepy Burton fellow from 35 years ago. If you need me, I'm happy to come and help. Simply say my name, Bloody Mary, three times into a mirror or other reflective surface. I'm not particularly eager to finish any conversation, so don't hesitate to call me if you need me. Now, I know there's been some discussion in years past about whether it's appropriate for ghosts and gods like myself and Juice to come to a convention like this. We are striving to be an inclusive community. We are all stronger together. And when we tried to change to Entity Community Convention, we ended up sharing an acronym with the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I will tell you now, there's nothing scarier than standing in the middle of the woods with a bunch of Christians who have just seen the Jersey Devil. I liked it. I bet you did, Jersey. So we're keeping the name. But we would like to say, as we have said for the last five years, skunk ape, that we're opening up the term cryptid to mean any entity that terrifies or torments humans or that a shocking number of humans do not believe is real. So that means we will be hosting COVID vaccines for free for any cryptid that wants them. In our effort to continue our initiative... This is the first year we've invited the creepy pastas. A round of applause. Thank you. Yes, please be nice to Slenderman while he's getting used to the offline world. 
In celebration, the Flying Spaghetti Monster and the One-Eyed, One-Horned, Flying Purple People Eater will be hosting a dinner and data seminar on how to increase your online presence. If you cannot fly, don't worry. Brooms will be provided for you at the beginning of the seminar. Continuing with the online theme, Mothman will be hosting two interactive classes this year, one titled Gen AI and You. Mongolian Deathworm, I think you'll really appreciate all the extra fingers AI gives its monstrous creations. He's also hosting the Cryptid as an Independent Contractor. Yes, yes, I know. TurboTax is terrifying. But Mothman was the first of us to form an LLC, so he's equipped. Yeah, man, totally. Like, my absolute pleasure, man. I'm always happy to help. Both corporate and mythological entities must pay taxes. Just a quick note, doubling back to the uh, discussion of gods, if you'd like to get a religious text signed, please search for them by Pantheon in your pamphlets. Continuing on the Entity Expansion Initiative, there are a few humans here. Jason, Michael, and Freddy have done an incredible amount of work killing people over the last four decades, and we think that they've more than earned their place here. We ask that the man-eaters, I'm looking at you, vampires, and werewolves, I see you snickering, please resist the urge to compel and kill them. Honestly, they might get you first. If you do feel the need to consume torture or even just scare a few people, we invite you to head over to our cabin in the woods. We listed it as an Airbnb, so there should be a new unsuspecting couple coming every night. We simply ask that you be considerate and leave enough for everyone. Bigfoot, on that note, I'm going to need you to stop using other entities' chairs as footrests. It's rude. Sure. Thank you. For my aquatic friends, we have a number of lakes and streams available for your comfort, but I do need everyone to respect one another's territory. We don't want to see another fight between the Loveland Frogmen and the Kappa, or another who's the first plesiosaur battle between Nessie, Flessie, and Champ. You drowned an entire town last time, and we had to move the convention. We would like to thank the monster under the bed for continuing to uplift our work with the Spooky Child Alliance. For those who are unfamiliar, this is our long-standing effort to partner new ghosts and monsters with creepy, unblinking children so they terrify their families and introduce the human community to their new haunt. We would also like to give convention kudos to the Martians who've worked so hard on our almost decade-old partnership with the podcasters. I think we can all agree the publicity has been exceptional. I know there's been quite a lot of controversy over the Entity of the Year award, the competition to tally the most deaths each year. Unfortunately, the Dark Watchers are disqualified because deaths cannot be counted based on group total. We're sorry for any confusion. Please know we respect your work. And next year, consider the team competition. Your current list of contenders is Yeti. Good work as always. Snalagaster. Nice to see your numbers up, my friend. Specter Moose. Always a delight. Chupacabra, of course. Bloody Mary, thank you. And that one orange cat from Ohio. Please don't forget to join the award ceremony at the next full moon. Uh, um, Oh, sorry. uh, There is one last thing. A quick update on the Salem situation. Sounds like we've fallen back as a collective in the region. What was once a genuine terror 
uh, has turned into a Halloween money grab. Bridget Bishop is hosting a town hall to discuss options tomorrow morning. Are we doing the witch trials again? No, that's just people killing other people. We're really going for something a little more supernatural. I'll wrap it up here. Please, everyone, put your hands down. If you have any notes about ways to improve the convention, please put them in Pandora's comment box. We open it at the end of the weekend, and it's a great time, I promise. Thank you all for coming. We're so glad to have you. Let's head over to that opening party and then go call some people's names in the woods. This was so good. It's it, it's scarily accurate to a conference I went to. <laughs> like a tech conference I went to a couple months ago with just the like, we've thought about this group and this group and we've organized this and there's this going on and all of our initiatives, which always have acronyms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, It's it's a little bit Astrid-y. I was going to say that. I was like, we got to get Bloody Mary with Astrid and Nina, our other tour guides from the afterlife and the Doma voice. I'm sure that... Bloody Mary, the actual Bloody Mary that you can, in fact, summon in a mirror, is planning her revenge upon me for doing that voice, using her name. I bet she's relieved to finally have a different way of being portrayed in the media. I just like imagining someone standing on a, like, stump, giving a speech, just covered in blood, with this really perky voice. Yes, I imagine her looking horrifying. But she's the most organized one in the group. She's a people person. We know that. We know that. <laughs> I loved this. This was delightful. And I loved all the callbacks to different episodes we've done. Thank you. I just feel utterly confident that that one orange cat from Ohio is going to win most deaths this year. We all believe in that one orange cat from Ohio. Which, by the way, next time I get a cat, regardless of what it looks like, its full legal name will be that one orange cat from Ohio. <laughs> Orange cats are crazy. They're insane. They're insane. They're living in a different world than we are. No, you know, it's their world and we're just here. We're allowed to live in it. We're not even welcome or encouraged to. So I will admit when I saw your next thing in the outline, I squealed. Yes. So I picked three different stories from Appalachian folklore for us to get a little bit more in depth with today. And the first one is the Bell Witch. Yes! She's (laughs) so scary. What do you know about her? Well, I do remember we tried to insert her into the small strip of woods outside our elementary school. (laughs) And I remember the exact book that I first heard about her in. And I remember exactly where it is in our elementary school library. (laughs) Presuming, of course, that it's still there. Uh, Well, and they've never changed the layout because why would you? It was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) The myth of the Bell Witch revolves around the legend of the Bell family in early 19th century Tennessee. They experienced a series of terrifying events, including strange, unexplainable noises, physical attacks, and sightings of a dark entity or strange creatures believed to be the Bell Witch. It's so good. It's so good. It's like the most classic haunting story. In 1894, newspaper editor Martin V. Ingram released The Authenticated History of the Bell Witch. Oh, yeah. Newspapers don't hit like this anymore. No, they really don't. So this book is commonly described as the first comprehensive text on the legend and is used as a primary source for many later works. 
Some skeptics have regarded Ingram's effort as a work of historical fiction or fraud, while others consider his work a nascent folklore study and an accurate reflection of belief in the region during the 19th century. So in this story, the poltergeist named Kate claimed to be Old Kate Bat's Witch. Yes. <laughs> Such a good name. Old Kate Bat's. Old Kate Bat's Witch. Let's try saying that three times fast. Old Kate Bat's Witch. Old Kate Bat's Witch. Old Kate Bat's Witch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, old Kate Batts expressed displeasure with the family, especially after the youngest daughter, Betsy Bell, became engaged to a man named Joshua Gardner. Yeah, get ready. This relationship's going to be important later. But according to Haunted Tennessee, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Volunteer State by Alan Brown, the haunting began in 1817 when John Bell witnessed the apparition of a strange creature resembling a dog with the head of a rabbit. Bell fired at the animal, but it disappeared, and John's son, Drew Bell, approached an unknown bird of extraordinary size perched on a fence before it flew off. So they're seeing strange things. Right. They're getting freaked out. Now we're bringing Betsy back in, because Betsy observed a girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of an oak tree. And Dean... A person enslaved by the Fell family reported being followed by a large black dog on evenings he visited his wife. Activity moved to the Bell household with knocking being heard along the doors and walls, and the family heard sounds of gnawing on the beds, invisible dogs fighting, and chains along the floor. So it's getting more intense. The fact that I didn't remember that they had an enslaved person tells me that either, one, I was too focused on the ghosts as a child to think about the larger issues happening, or two, it was deleted from the kids' book that I read about this. I think I know which one's more likely to have happened. Bummer. Yeah. And so all members of the family are getting some sort of interaction. They're hearing things. They're seeing things. And it's getting worse and worse. So it's about this time that John Bell began experiencing paralysis in his mouth. The phenomenon grew in intensity as sheets were pulled from beds while the children slept, and soon the entity began pulling hair and scratching the children, with a particular emphasis on Betsy, who was slapped, pinched, and stuck with pins. Poor Betsy's really getting the brunt of it, which I think happens a lot in these haunting stories. Teenage or young adult women tend to get picked on pretty heavily. Yeah. Yeah, there's maybe some idea of madness there. There could be some attention-seeking there because I'm sure things aren't going great for you. Mm -hmm. I also, Betsy doesn't sound like a nice human being name. And I know you're not supposed to say things like that. But in this story, Betsy's a very hateable name. <laughs> I mean, that's all we really have to go on with her is just her name. They don't talk about her much. She'll come into play a little bit later on, but not too much. But at this point, now that everyone's getting attacked, Betsy's particularly being attacked, the family contacts their friend James Johnson, who they believed could help because supposedly this person had experience with supernatural entities before this. This is when the apparition begins to speak out loud. So the group asked the spirit, who are you? And what do you want? And the voice answered feebly, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. 
However, at this point, various answers have been given as to the origins of the spirit, including the disturbance of a Native American burial mound, which was located on the property, demonic possession, and the one we all know now, the Bell Witch. So now that the spirit was speaking, it really went all out, and it began to repeat word for word two sermons that were given 13 miles apart at the same time. Nice. Right? The entity was well acquainted with biblical texts and appeared to enjoy religious arguments. It would get into philosophical and religious debates with people. And, as another amusement, the witch shared gossip about activities in other households and at times appeared to leave for brief moments to visit homes after an inquiry. Oh, I know what I'm going to be doing in my afterlife now. Absolutely. This is just a nosy old lady. I... I know we're not supposed to love the Bell Witch, and these were real people who probably really suffered. But from a story perspective, I love this lady. I'm not convinced they really suffered. This sounds like it might be one of those stories that you fabricate so that people will pay a penny to come and see your house. Yeah. Yeah, because they didn't really – they didn't move out of the house. Anyway. Except Dean. We know Dean suffered. Dean so, suffered. you know, the Bell family, not good guys. I don't know enough to definitively say one way or the other, but I'm not going to not stand beside you with that statement. So the next witch story comes from Pat Fitzhugh's book, The Bell Witch, The Full Account. Quote, John Johnston, son of James, devised a test for the witch, something no one outside the family would know, asking the entity what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say to the enslaved people if she thought they did something wrong. The witch replied with his grandmother's accent, saying, what has happened now? In another account, an Englishman stopped to visit and offered to investigate. On remarking on his family overseas, the witch suddenly began to mimic his English parents. Again, in the early morning, the witch woke him to voices of his parents worried as they had heard his voice as well. The Englishman quickly left that morning and later wrote to the Bell family that the entity had visited his family in England. He apologized for his skepticism. End quote. I think it's really ballsy to assume that all ghosts know all people and all things. Yeah, but I, I love that she does, though. She's just a nosy telephone of an old lady. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. Like, that's so good. <laughs> so the witch was surprisingly nice to two people, John's wife, Lucy, and their son, John Bell Jr., she would give Lucy compliments and sing hymns to her or give her fresh fruit and sweets as a gift. However, the Bell Witch really hated John, who she referred to as Old Jack. She eventually went on to poison the patriarch three years after she first appeared. And in some versions of the story, she leaves the family alone after this. In others, she comes back to torture the daughter Betsy some more through the 1820s. And this at times was because she was engaged, because she wasn't engaged. It happened for years. It didn't happen at all. Right. And there was one other claim that she would come back in 1935 to haunt the Bell family descendants, but no one came forward to claim that experience. If I were a Bell family descendant, I would 100% specifically seek out this witch to haunt me. I think this witch sounds like a fun lady to have hanging around the house. A bit nosy, though. I don't know if I need her in all of my business. It seems like a fair trade. When you don't have telephones and she can do international calls, it's pretty convenient. That's a really good point. 
In January and February of 1856, the publications New England Farmer and The Green Mountain Freeman published articles regarding the Bell Witch legend. Both publications ascribed the origin of the text to the Saturday Evening Post. The author stated that the voice, which spoke freely about the house from all directions, would not manifest itself until the lights were extinguished at night. The phenomenon attracted wide interest. The author claimed to have become well acquainted with Mr. Gardner. When the ghost asked how long it would remain, it replied, until Joshua Gardner and Betsy Bell get married. The author goes on to state that Betsy Bell had fallen in love with Joshua Gardner and had discovered the skill of ventriloquism. The author states that Ms. Bell then used her skill to attempt to convince Joshua Gardner to marry her. When they did not marry, the apparition disappeared. There it is. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a girl looking for attention. Well, it's it's very Fox Sisters. And the person mm-hmm. who is most tormented, I think, is the most likely to be the perpetrator because they can fake it the best. Yeah. An artist drawing of Betsy Bell, originally published in 1894. My poor girl, they did you dirty. Yeah, would you like to describe this lady? Yeah, it's a, it's a etching pencil drawing. I don't know. It's black and white, low res. Um, it's a gal in a nightdress, you know, with the slightly puffy sleeves going all the way to the floor. And her hair is crazy. Yeah. Not like my hair crazy, but like. When they draw little hairs sticking out to make sure they're saying crazy. Yeah, when they're specifically like, this is an unkempt person, which must mean not sane, which must mean scary, hair sticking in all directions. Yeah. Yeah. She. It's funny, though, because you don't have to be any of those things to fake a ghost witch. <laughs> I like it, honestly. It's an interesting drawing. It's that classic black and white newspaper print. So that is the story of the Bell Witch. My childhood witch. And I love her. <laughs> I love her. The next story is about the Brown Mountain Lights. Have you heard of this? I don't know this. Okay. This one I had heard of, but it was really fun to dive into it. So, for over a century, mysterious ghost lights have been appearing near the Brown Mountains in North Carolina. They appear to float and bob around in the air, hovering in the sky, particularly at night. So according to the Brown Mountain Lights, history, science, and human nature explain an Appalachian mystery, the earliest published mentions of the lights began in 1912 on the heels of the first publication of Jules Verne's 1906 novel, Master of the Worlds, in English in 1911. An important plot point in the novel consists of a mad scientist constructing an airship inside his secret lair in the Table Rock near Morganton, North Carolina. Activities which cause strange lights to appear on the summit of the mountain. The rapidly expanding electrification of the Linville-George area from the 1890s through the 1910s seems to be the origin of the Brown Mountain Lights legend, possibly helped by Verne's novel. That's awesome. That's really cool, actually. Isn't that really cool? This one is less of a mystery. They think they've pretty much solved it. But I had to include it because imagine being around at this time. This novel comes out. It's hugely popular. And then the real world starts to reflect, possibly, this story that you've just consumed. That's exciting. It's awesome. Other sources that I found claimed that the first sighting was by a fisherman in 1913. But it's important to note that there are many potential origin stories for this myth. And that's most likely because these lights are almost certainly a byproduct of electricity. Mm, 
Bummer. In 1922, scientist George R. Mansfield showed that the mysterious brown mountain lights were probably just distant electric lights. Since this revelation, some people have been creating new tales to keep the mystery alive. Stories began claiming that the lights have actually been around since before electricity came into the area, despite little evidence actually supporting those stories. However, supposedly the lights could still be seen after a flood in 1916 took power out in the area. So I think, who's to say what these lights really are? Although I always say it, who's to say? Yeah, you always say it. You're famous for it. Famous for saying <laughs> who's to say. So here is a picture from the Appalachian State University of the mysterious brown mountain lights. Yeah, I mean, the bummer of this picture is I live in the electrified age. So this just looks like a photograph of mountains and then an, a city in the background. Mm -hmm. So the I would say the three quarters of the photograph from the bottom up are just rolling mountainous hills where the trees are so dense that it looks kind of like a, f a fleece blanket that's yeah, crumpled. Yeah. And then the back, you can still see the mountains, but it's got little light speckles all over it. Interestingly, some of them look almost human-shaped, mm -hmm. which is cool. Uh, it could just be the flare from the lens. And then there's a big old full-looking moon overhead. Yeah. So the Appalachian State University has thousands and thousands of these photos because they've been studying the area for a long time, trying to figure out what this phenomenon is. And while there are some that they can't explain, for the most part, they've established that it is most likely from electricity. I hate it when the answer's boring. I know. I know. When I first was reading about this and seeing the dates of 1890 through 1910, I was like, oh, interesting. I wonder if electricity is playing a part in – oh, yep, there it is. It's part of what makes the turn of the century so fun. Mm-hmm. Because it's where that science and magic is still kind of the same thing, and mm -hmm. both are rapidly expanding. AI. AI. Let's put the <laughs> magic back in AI. I've got so many thoughts on AI, but we don't have time for that now. Oh, Instead, yeah. Instead – should we talk about the Flatwoods Monster? Yeah. I don't know this one either. This one was new to me as well. This is the Flatwoods Monster, also known as the Braxton County Monster, Braxy, or the Phantom of Flatwoods. <laughs> this is a West Virginia story, and this creature is reported to have been sighted in the town of Flatwoods in Braxton County, West Virginia, on September 12, 1952, just after a bright light crossed the night sky. So let's set the scene. It's 7.15 p.m. on September 12, 1952. Two siblings, Edward and Fred May, along with their friend Tommy Heyer, reported witnessing a glowing object move across the sky and land on local farmer G. Bailey Fisher's property. The trio then visited Kathleen May's residence, sharing their story with her. And Kathleen May, accompanied by the three boys, local children Neil Nunley and Ronnie Shaver, and West Virginia National Guardsman Eugene Lemon head to the Fisher Farm to investigate this mysterious sighting. So there's a big group of them. Okay. They're all going, and they're trying to figure out they saw a bright light that seemed to land in this farmer's yard. Upon reaching the hilltop, Nunley claimed they observed a pulsating red light. Lemon recounted pointing a flashlight in that direction and briefly glimpsing a tall, man-like figure with a round, Red face surrounded by a pointed hood-like shape, similar to a spade on a playing card. Interesting. 
it's a really weird shape. We'll get to some pictures in a moment that kind of help contextualize it. But according to the descriptions, the figure was approximately 10 feet or three meters tall with a rounded blood red face, a large pointed hood-like shape around the head, eye-like shapes which admitted greenish orange light, and a dark black or green body. Greenish orange is not an easy color to admit. No, it's a weird combination of colors. According to the story, when the figure made a hissing sound and glided towards the group, Lemon screamed and dropped his flashlight. Keep in mind, Lemon is the official guardsman from the West Virginia National Guard. I just thought of that too. That was my (laughs) first thought. Screams, drops the flashlight, causing the whole group to just run away. And afterward, the group claimed they smelled a strange, pungent scent during the encounter, and they all began to feel nauseated. However, when others visited the scene the next day, no strange scent was in the air, but there was an odd gummy material left behind and some track marks on the ground. First mistake, you can't run, you gotta walk slowly. Walk slowly. Which I feel like must come from, like, bears, right? Sorry to double back. uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I have implemented that tactic more since I got a dog than any other time in my life. Because if you run away from a dog, they want to chase and play. But if you walk slowly away, then you're boring and it's not worth chasing you. So I feel like this alien being might feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to describe? (sighs) I have two pictures here, an artist rendition and then another image that is honestly more accurate to the original description, but uh, it it is an armchair. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to the armchair in a second. Uh, The first one looks like a baby stingray. You know how baby stingrays look like haunted raviolis? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're right. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now that's all I'm seeing. I was thinking it's like a Dalek meets a playing card. Oh, yeah. the Okay. I don't really know what a Dalek was, but as soon as you said it, I could recall the, like, robot-y situation. Mm -hmm. So imagine yourself... A haunted ravioli. <laughs> um, it it kind of has a leaf head, like a, I want to say poplar leaf, but that's pretty audacious for someone who doesn't know what leaves go with which trees. Oh, my God. Did you nail it? I'm sorry, but I am the most informed leaf knower that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. You're a botanist at this point. I think that you are owed a degree. Actually, I'm so sorry to quickly pivot. Uh I was talking with friends the other day, and if I could find a way to get a university to give us a honorary degree for this podcast, I would be overjoyed. I would do it in a heartbeat. We've done so much research. We've definitely, over three odd years, three and a half, four years, whatever, accomplished a degree's worth of research about potentially not real or real things, as I'm talking about an alien. Hey, it's mythology and folklore. It's history, mysteries, and mythology. You're right. I'm just thinking about the alien right now, but history, mystery, and mythology is definitely worthy of a degree. Hey, anyone who works at a university or college, can you get us an honorary degree in history, mystery, mythology? We'll take pretty much any degree you offer, though, for being honest. (laughs) For sure. Mathematics, let's go. I would – even better. Are you kidding? (laughs) Okay. So we got a poplar leaf. And then there's kind of like a bulbousy head. That's where the ravioli part comes in, in the middle mm-hmm. bottom. And this mm-hmm. one has red glowing eyes. Yeah. And then it has a body that Tracy said looked like a Dalek. I think it looks like a pepper grinder. Uh, it's got like puffed shoulders, sleeves. 
a chest, a little um like accordion middle, and then a like a ruffled cupcake sleeve skirt. It really looks like a salt shaker the more you look at it. I'm doing my best. Uh, and then it has little uh, snowman arms that each have three fingers. Uh-huh. My favorite part of this is the height comparison. Yes, I was just going to say. And the height comparison brings a person up to not even its full shoulders, which is honestly a little bit scary. Bigness mm-hmm. is scary, just like littleness is. Okay, but the next one is the Town of Flatwoods themed deck chairs around town. You know how when you go to like ski places, they have the chairs made out of the old skis or they when you go to tourist traps, they make a chair out of the thing that they're known for so that you can sit in it and take a picture? Yeah, like the giant Adirondack chairs. Yeah, that's what this is. Yeah. And in this one, it looks like a regular round-headed alien that's red and a little bit wrinkly with yellow eyes. And then it looks like it has like a peacock headdress made of plasma fire. <laughs> yeah, the colors of this one are much more accurate because it's got the red head with the yellow eyes, the green body, the black spade behind it. Like this one I included just because it's more accurate to what was actually described. But that first picture is like the picture that Wikipedia uses that pops up when you search for the Flatwoods monster. So It's got a blue frock over its shoulders that maybe is meant to be silver. I don't know. And it's got the same kind of salt and pepper shaker body. (laughs) But this one has like a utility belt. Yeah. You know if they push a button, it's filled with like a grappling hook and like a sample collector and stuff. Yeah, maybe snacks. Who knows? Little snackies. Yeah. And then it also has little three fingers, but they're a part of the chair. (laughs) Yeah. So after investigating the case in 2000, Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry concluded that the bright light in the sky reported by the witnesses on September 12th was most likely a meteor, which had been spotted in the area. Oh. I still think a meteor is cool as part of the story, so I'll take it. Yeah, but there's no spooky salt and pepper shaker. (laughs) The pulsating red light was likely an aircraft navigation or a hazard beacon And the creature described by witnesses closely resembled an owl. (laughs) The leading theory is that they saw an owl up close in a tree branch but didn't realize what it was in the dark. Nichols suggested that the witnesses' perceptions were distorted by their heightened state of anxiety, and his conclusions are shared by a number of other investigators, including those of the Air Force. So... This is related, I swear. I just found out the other day that the Joseon royal family, which ruled in Korea, took daily records for 500 years every single day. There was someone following them around writing, and they'd be like, don't write that. And then the person would write that they said not to write that. Like, that was the amount (laughs) of intensity that we had. And they were kept from 1392 to, I think, 1865. But in that, they have records of UFOs. Really? Where they would be like, today over the palace, we saw a saucer in the sky or like a bowl in the sky. Huh. So, you know, it could be a meteor or it it could have also been the Flatwoods monster. (laughs) Here's my thing with this story. I mean, yeah, okay. It could have been a meteor and an airplane and an owl. Or it could have been that like six people really saw this thing. I mean, there was... A not insignificant group going up to this farm to investigate. Right. And also, 
why is it more logical that there was a meteor and a plane and plane and an owl? And an owl. <laughs> I would give two of those things. But it's the third thing that makes it weird. Even though I guess like an owl being in the woods isn't weird. And a plane being in the sky isn't weird. So it's two standard things. The weird thing to me is when six people see the same thing. Or more. When a, when a large group of people all see the same thing and report on it. I just, I choose to believe. It's more fun. I, one, I've never heard you say that about this kind of thing. So heck yeah, welcome. <laughs> Two, I wonder if Lemon was just so embarrassed that they ran away. that They were like, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. So everyone's like, it was an alien. I want to live. The more that we talk about this story, the more it's giving off Stranger Things vibes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like the group of kids investigating the thing with they're also adults who are investigating it. Maybe they really did see all of this and it's the government covering it up or something. I don't know. It feels very. It also reminds me of Mothman. Mm-hmm. Shocker. <laughs> well, Mothman is also big for this region, but I chose not to cover him because we have a whole episode on Mothman. Mothman, my moth bro. <laughs> All right. Now it's your turn to talk about a very interesting topic. Yeah. So this is a topic that we have discussed discussing mm -hmm. off and on for a long time. And we can't really talk about Appalachia without discussing the Wendigo because it is one of the most famous creatures from this corner of the world. Mm -hmm. And please know we are going to be incredibly sparing using the full name of the creature because numerous members of the Algonquin-speaking tribes from which this monster originates have asked people not to say the name. I also want us to know what we're discussing, so we do have to kind of work with what we got, but we're going to probably both try to say the W, which is kind of the mm -hmm. colloquial term for it, as much as possible while we discuss uh, I, Tracy and I are also from an area that inherited the superstition that you don't say it or it will come. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's true of a lot of monsters from Appalachia, probably because of the cultural diffusion. Uh, and then, you know, why are we discussing this lore, even though folks keep asking other people to stop appropriating their culture? And that is because education is not appropriation, and I do believe that the best way to get someone to follow a request or a demand is for them to understand why people are making it. I agree. So if you'd like to learn more about the W from an incredibly qualified teacher, you should see our source labeled Journal of Religion and Film, where you'll find a 2018 paper titled Classroom Cannibal, A Guide to How to Teach Ojibwe Spirituality Using the Wendigo and Film by Ojibwe scholar Dr. Brady Santee. Uh, it's a really cool paper. Otherwise, seek out indigenous sources for more information. This is going to be a pretty brief overview. This has also been on my mind because there's such a large number of members of the TTRPG community who listen to this podcast. We're both members of that community. And Many folks who play D&D love to put the W in their campaigns. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a large reason why the creature is featured online so heavily right now in a lot of corners of the internet. It's on the D&D wiki, Forgotten Realms, GM Binder, and it's a bummer. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all know other people's closed practices are not our toys. So I, I would encourage everyone 
there are hundreds upon hundreds of folks out there writing awesome adventures and TTRPGs about their own mythological practices that are open and they're purposefully trying to share them with people. So if there is something about the W that you are excited about, I can guarantee 100% that you can find an equally satisfying monster that someone is enthusiastic about you playing with. So the W is heavily associated with Appalachia, but the territories of Algonquin-speaking tribes include part of Appalachia, the Northeast, and Canada. So the range of this beastie is quite broad. Mm-hmm. Because they come from such a broad region, there are many variations in the W's appearance and abilities, but there are some commonalities. Sometimes they're thin, other times quite beefy, but they're consistently very tall and are known to grow as they eat. Some may have more hair, others ash-colored skin. Often their skull and or partial skeleton is exposed outside of their skin. They have sharp teeth, terrible body odor and breath, and frequently have antlers or horns and may possess pointed animal ears. Their eyes may also be sunken and or glow like hot embers. If you're a person on the internet or who watches movies, you've probably seen the W in art as a tall, skinny, werewolf-esque beast with an empty-eyed, exposed deer skull and large antlers and then it often has blood on its clawed hands and sharp teeth. Mm-hmm. That's the image that came to my mind. I also always see it with wolf teeth in its deer skull, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Depictions usually include superhuman strength, stamina, eyesight, hearing, and sense of smell, making them incredible predators. And some stories describe them with the ability to walk across water or on top of snow. Horrifying. Horrifying. Could you Absolutely. imagine seeing that? I would be terrified. And for some reason, the snow one freaks me out more because it's so hard to run through dense snow. And if you're running away with all you can and this creature's just strolling along on top, like it's no big deal. It's a good visual. It's a creepy visual. While some stories will describe these monsters succumbing to standard weapons, they often possess frozen hearts that must be destroyed with fire or through a ceremony performed by a spiritual leader. If anyone has heard of the Chinu, the Gawaka, the Mewe, the Stonecoat from a, a number of tribes, uh, these all fall in the category of ice cannibal giants as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's an awesome article by Caitlin Smith called More Than Monsters, The Deeper Significance of Wendigo Stories that is one of my primary sources today because it features just so many brilliant texts and quotes. It was published by Facing History and Ourselves, which is now a global organization that's been around since 1976, and bears the mission statement, Facing History and Ourselves uses lessons of history to challenge teachers and their students to stand up to bigotry and hate. They also have the absolute banger quote, people make choices, choices make history. Ooh, that's so good. I look forward to using that at a really inappropriate time in conversation. Absolutely. Constantly. I can imagine getting grounded and having a parent be like, mm, people make choices, choices make history. Enjoy your no dinner and no game console. Yeah. <laughs> in Algonquin traditions, the W monster emerges not randomly or in violent response to colonialism, as it often does in popular media. 
but through a specific set of circumstances that are unique to different tribal groupings. In most traditions, the W is human in origin and becomes a monster through a process that results either from acts of starvation-induced cannibalism or from possession by a spirit. In the course of the transformation from human to W, the person exhibits increasing selfishness, violence, hunger, and greed, particularly for human flesh. This is a story shared not merely for entertainment, but to reinforce the communal values that allow the communities in which this practice occurs to live well with one another and within their environments. So the whole story about the W is that it comes from cannibalism. Which I knew because I don't like cannibalism. It just gets to me. So I've always stayed away from investigating these creatures because I was never drawn to Yeah, I mean, we won't get into the icky bits. That's about as icky as this episode's going to get, really. But it's such a brilliant myth, especially to me in in reference to the winter to have literal cannibalism be an allegory for how to be Mm -hmm. a good community member. Yeah. Not that this myth needs me to tell it it's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Ojibwe activist Winona LaDuke coined the term Wendigo economics. And during a panel put on by Yes Magazine on environmentalism, LaDuke said, there's this conflict between the cannibals and Mother Earth, and it's going on everywhere, and we're on the right side. That's what we're working on, but sometimes you get that cannibal tendency. Oh, interesting. It's such an interesting quote. I I always get really enthusiastic any time people use mythology from their culture to talk about very grounded things like politics because Mm -hmm. I think there's this modern conception that those things are removed and that is deeply inaccurate. In his 1978 book, Columbus and Other Cannibals, The Wetico Disease of Exploitation, Imperialism, and Terrorism, Native American scholar Dr. Jack D. Forbes writes, Wetico is a Cree term, which refers to a cannibal or, more specifically, to an evil person or spirit who terrorizes other creatures by means of terrible acts, including cannibalism. I have come to the conclusion that imperialism and exploitation are forms of cannibalism and, in fact, are precisely those forms of cannibalism which are more diabolical or evil. It should be understood that Wetikos do not eat other humans only in a symbolic sense— The deaths of tens of millions of Jews, Slavs, etc. at the hands of the Nazis, the deaths of tens of millions of blacks in slavery days, the deaths of up to 30 million or more Indians in the 1500s, the terrible short lifespans of Mexican Indian farm workers in the U.S. and of Native Americans generally today, the high death rates in the early industrial centers among factory workers and so on all clearly attest to the fact that the wealthy and exploitative literally consume the lives of those they exploit. That, I would affirm, is truly and literally cannibalism, and it is cannibalism accompanied by no spiritually meaningful ceremony or ritual, end quote. That is a great, powerful quote. It feels very poignant. I'm sure it feels equally as poignant today as it did when the book was written. Maybe even more so, given everything going on. Yeah, and if anyone has the opportunity to read this book, it would be very timely. 
Dr. Forbes discusses in a fair bit of detail the way that the Israeli occupation of Palestine resembles the colonization of North America, including the mass unhousing and murder of indigenous people. I've included the link to purchase this book on Thriftbooks in the show notes. And if following the news right now feels daunting, but you would like to learn from a brilliant American POC scholar who was engaging with this topic long before the recent genocide of Palestinians, I would highly recommend his work. He approaches everything from a very global perspective, and it Mm. is very accessible. I am really glad you found that. So you can find the link to that in our show notes. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's it's like the barest little taste of Appalachia. Yes, and I think anyone listening to our podcast at this point knows. But if this was interesting to you, you can always check out the amazing podcast, Old Gods of Appalachia. Uh, I will be there if you're listening to it. I will also be listening to it in the same moment as you. It's like yeah, hovering over your shoulder. Well, it's like that we're but we're all under the same moon, except we're all listening to the same podcast. <laughs> yes. So for now, why don't you tell me something good? My something good feels very appropriate to this episode, and that is that you got me a Christmas present, and it just came, which is yes. awesome. I love belated presents; they make the holiday or gift giving thing so much longer. Mm-hmm. It extends it. But you got me bones. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I got you a, a red fox bone. It's – I was telling Tracy in a video call, it's the cleanest bone I've ever seen, which I think reveals a lot about me in a way I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> and it's hanging on this beautiful chain and it has a drawing that is in the style of an etching of an eye. Mm-hmm. And it's just so crisp and beautiful. It's already hanging on my wall. I love doing the video call gift openings with you. <laughs> Yours had me giggling. <laughs> Rowan filmed it like it was a uh, an, a celebrity unboxing. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to my unboxing video. <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think every friend would be bold enough to give you dead things. And I really appreciate that you are. <laughs> I was so excited when I found it because I found this store and she does amazing work. I mean, there's carved skulls, painted skulls, just some clean, beautiful white skulls. And when I found a painted fox jawbone, <laughs> I mean, game over. Game over. That says if, – if nothing else says – it had no bugs on it. It was like a beautiful eyeball painting. I mean, it was perfect. Ugh, so good. It – it blows my mind that this person is carving skulls because carving skulls is very stinky because oftentimes you have to heat it up and it is made of, mm-hmm. of living thing, but like living yeah. animal thing, not like living plant thing. So it doesn't smell like a hot salad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but their their work is amazing and I was very geeked out and I really appreciate also that you got me a Memento Mori t-shirt, but in the size that I can just be a potato I'm so glad you knew that that was the goal of it because I always feel weird when you get people shirts or something and you're like, what size do I give them? Like, I don't want them. And I was like, I know Rowan likes things to be big and cozy and oversized and she can just curl up inside of them. So I I made sure to get you a size you could curl up. Thank you. I just want to be a potato. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is that this upcoming week I have my first 
full official session of Candela that I'm running. No. So we had session zero a couple of weeks ago, which was so fun. We spent so much time going over the relationship questions mm. and building out this really cool circle. So the last thing we have to do is finish building out the circle, and then we're starting the adventure, which is one that I created for this group. So I'm really excited. What is their circle name? Have they picked one yet? Not yet. That's one of the last things they have to do. Because you know this group, it's going to be either the goofiest name you've ever heard, or they're going to genuinely spend another two hours just picking It's either going to be the circle of folding your paper hot dog and hamburger style, or it's going to be the circle of... Uh, possession and feathers. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Hmm? What does that even hmm? mean? <laughs> what does any of this mean? What are you talking about? Hmm? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait. I loved hearing about your session zero. The relationship questions are the best part. They're the best. It was so cute. We went from this group of a bunch of different people who had no connections to one character kind of has this weird crush on another. And like we're like, oh, what's going on? Their families don't like that they're friends. But then another character secretly thinks one of the other characters is their soulmate. So then they're dealing with that in the background. And one person in the group's mysteriously missing wife is the reason that two of the players are now involved in the circle. And so... That's a connection. Yeah, it's so good. It just – for any TTRPG you do, like try to – what I did is I took the the old Spencer Stark route and I just said pick <laughs> – you, you can each pick two questions from this whole list or you can take them and rewrite them or come up with something new or use it as inspiration. But you each get two questions that you can ask to anyone. Go. And it was so fun. It genuinely took almost three hours, but it was worth every single second. Of I it. love it when someone says, you know, you are my soulmate. And then that person's relationship back is you're a stranger or like just so opposite. Or like, I think you're my bully and then they think you're their muse. It's like, what is happening? <sighs> the way I wish I could be a fly on the wall. Just just put your phone on FaceTime, say everyone Rowan's on FaceTime, and then just leave it there. I just I'll just listen. It's fine. I'm so excited I miss the girls. I miss our girls game. It's the best. It's the best group. They're such a good group. So that's my something good. You know, you and I, we love our TTRPGs, so I'm very excited. But for now, I just want to thank you all so much for joining us. And please remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, Join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. 
And if someone calls your name in the woods, no, they didn't.